Greetings and welcome to another edition of Trinity Radio. I am Jonathan Pritchett and today I'm going to be reviewing a debate between cosmic skeptic and Christian apologist Jonathan McGlatchey on the question, is Christianity true? Um, first, I want to say a few kind words about Cosmic Skeptic. I'm going to be reviewing primarily his opening statement and make a few other comments. Um, I appreciate him uh, for several reasons. One, I am always appreciative when atheists will take theology seriously. He's a student at Oxford. Uh, in addition to being a YouTuber, he uh, studies both philosophy and theology, and I'm always uh, excited when atheists take theology seriously at an academic level, even if they believe none of it. So uh, props for that. I also want to commend him for being uh, one of the best-dressed uh, YouTube atheists out there. Um, and he has the best hair of all the YouTube atheists. And I point this out because uh, I am a barber, still a licensed barber, uh, in addition to my seminary work, uh, I no longer practice cutting hair, but I was a licensed barber, and I continue to maintain my license and keep it current. So I notice those kinds of things. He's kind of the um, Cameron Bertuzzi of cra capturing Christianity. He's got the best hair among us Christian YouTube apologists. And so Cosmic Skeptic, he has the best hair among his atheist colleagues. And finally, I want to commend him because he's not only debate and discusses the issues related to Christianity, but unlike 99.9% .9 of all of his YouTube atheist uh, colleagues, he actually will examine the claims and debate people of other religions as well. So props to you for that, because like Christians who are willing to debate uh, Muslims, uh, Jews, Wiccans, uh, and Christian cults, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, etc., uh, just, just about any world religion you can name, Cosmic Skeptic will discuss more than just Christianity, so props to uh, Cosmic Skeptic all around, and so let's get into his opening statement and see what he has to say. For having me, everybody. I'd also like to extend my gratitude to the organizers of tonight's event, but I don't want to spend too much time doing so. I want to jump into some of the meat of what we've been talking about. <coughs> so the evidence that's been presented thus far, and admittedly we haven't had much time to go through it, has been uh, biblical, uh, and that's because the only evidence that there is available uh, that can come close to proving the bodily resurrection of Christ is biblical. You have the Gospels and you have the Epistles. There are... Uh, um, technically, that's incorrect. You actually have history in, in addition to the historical documents. You have uh, the history of why uh, Jewish followers came to uh, believe in Jesus and why the church spread. That's um, a historical reality that's not merely in a ancient document contained in the 66 books of the canon, but okay. References, it seems, in, in some historical documents, such as the writings of Josephus, the first century Jewish uh, historian. However, the historical consensus is very plainly that this was uh, a forgery by later Christian writers. Um, it's very clear that Josephus wouldn't have written about uh, Jesus rising from the dead and being Christ as a Jew. Um, so the vast majority of historians reject that out of hand. In fact, Christian historians too, and they don't use it for that reason. So we're left... Wrong. Um, oh, stumbled uh, only uh, a minute and some change into his opening statement. That's technically not accurate about Josephus. Uh, everyone recognizes that some interpolation was involved. The discussion is not was the entire thing a Christian forgery or not? I don't, I think very few to any scholars actually will say that. Um, the consensus is that there are interpolations within the mention of Jesus in the antiquities. 
So uh, let's read what it says, and then we'll discuss what is actually said about it. It says, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. Now, granted, uh, there are, everyone agrees, interpolations of this. It was probably embellished by a Christian editor. Phrases like, if it be lawful to call him a man, and a teacher of such men has received the truth with pleasure, and he was the Christ... And for he appeared to them live the third day as the divine prophets had foretold 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. Those are usually trimmed out. Um, of course, the text appears in every Greek and Latin manuscript uh, of Josephus. Um, and of course, Josephus later mentions that Jesus was called Christ in the same book in Antiquities 20, uh, 9.1. And of course... Uh, that makes a reference to Jesus being the Christ, even if it didn't say he was the Christ. Uh, that makes that more likely, uh, even though it probably had less detail. And of course, all the vocabulary and grammar in this section belong to Josephus and not necessarily matching up well with the New Testament itself. Um, so you can trim it out a little bit, um, but the idea that everyone uh, rejects this, including Christians, is not even close, and I'm not sure where uh, Oxford here is getting that idea. See, the resurrection was part of the early kerygma. Uh, you find that in like 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7, which, of course, predate the Gospels by many years. Uh, some put it within three to seven years of the resurrection of Jesus, where this kind of formula was formed. And so um, it makes sense that if the statements about Jesus rising from the dead uh, are pretty early, and that is why his followers still follow him to that day. Um, it makes sense that Josephus might mention that. So, we also have um, the fact that Christians, they all met in synagogues, and they went to the temple, and priests and Pharisees were even converting and embracing the gospel, and, of course, the portion about the resurrection itself was found in the Arabic version of the Antiquities. So when you put all this together, what you find is, while there was uh, interpolations in some of the uh, the claims of, of Josephus sounding like he's reinforcing this as true might be edited, uh, it doesn't mean that the bulk of the content can be edited out. Uh, in fact, I think Mike Lycona gives a reasonable uh, version of what the original likely said. Um, he says, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of wonderful works. That's just common reputation and knowledge about Jesus. He drew over to him many uh, of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, basic knowledge. Uh, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, uh, meaning us Jews, uh, Josephus was a Jewish historian for the Romans, uh, had him condemned to the cross. 
Those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, still true, and reported he appeared to them alive again. So at least uh, that's to say that Josephus likely knew that that's what their central claim was, uh, which is quite reasonable. And the tribe of Christians, so named for him, are not extinct to this day. The, the resurrection being mentioned here, of course, makes sense of why Josephus would point out the fact that these Christians are still hanging around, and that was the central claim about Jesus, which as a good historian, he would, he, he would not necessarily affirm the resurrection, but at least say that that's what they reported, which is what uh, every atheist debater debating the resurrection of Jesus also uh, acknowledges that the early disciples reported that. Makes sense that Josephus would say that. So, to just dismiss Josephus like that as and say something random like all scholars and all Christian scholars even don't use it, absolutely false. And that's just bad uh, scholarship on the part of uh, Cosmic Skeptic here. In fact, no friend of uh, of bodily resurrections, uh, uh, John Dominic Crossan, he chides um, he chides uh, Robert Price for uh, dismissing this in the uh, four view, or five views on uh, the historical Jesus. Uh, Crossan writes. The first argument, in response to Dr. Price's uh, chapter, he says the first argument is from a convergence of one late first century text from the Jewish historian Josephus, talking about the antiquities, uh, and one early second century text from the Roman historian Tacitus from the Annals. And, by the way, Price's comment, quote, let me leapfrog the tiresome debate over whether the testimonium Flavianum is authentic, end quote, is not an acceptable scholarly comment as far as I am concerned. Ouch. Both those authors agree on four sequential points. First, there was a movement started by Jesus or Christ. Second, there was an execution by Pilate. Third, there was a continuation despite that attempt to end it. Fourth, there is still an ongoing movement of, quote, Christians. That is the external argument, and I deem it minor, because one could argue, but I won't, but I would not, uh, that both those authors were just copying uncritically from Christian sources, even though he says that's possible, that's not what he would ever argue. I think, on the other hand, that they were expressing common knowledge about Christians as followers of Christ, like Platonists of Plato, etc., etc. So even uh, Crossan is not accepting this, let's just not talk about Josephus, because that's not uh, scholarly at all, uh, according to Mr. Crossan, or Dr. Crossan here, and I absolutely agree. Um, so, uh, not no friend to uh, Orthodox Christianity at all, um, but yet uh, he dismisses and th this sort of uh, dismissal of Josephus as anti-scholarly, as do I. So, uh, take a look at uh, those, uh, if you like, um, and, and get a little bit more current uh, on Josephus. With just the Gospels and the epistles. Now the Gospels of course were written a generation or two after the events that they portray and it's very easy to see how stories can adapt uh, over that kind of time. Uh, one thing that we have to be careful of is to ensure that we are providing a sufficient level of uh, justification for the severity of the claim. 
Now, if I were trying to prove a simple historical claim that somebody, like, that Jesus Christ existed, for instance, it probably wouldn't take too much. It would take as much as trying to prove that Socrates existed or that Julius Caesar existed. But we're not just talking about a normal historical claim. We're talking about something far more extraordinary than that. And I'd like to ask you what it would take to convince you, just as I've been asked what it would take to convince me. What would it take to convince you that somebody had risen from the dead? And I think that it takes more than what we are presented with this evening. The Gospel accounts are, for a start, contradictory and filled with mythology, even in just the resurrection story. Uh, for instance, we can talk about the empty tomb. How many women discovered the empty tomb? The Gospel of John says it was one, Matthew two, Mark three, and Luke even more than that. Now this may seem a completely irrelevant, uh, a complete irrelevancy, and of course it doesn't uh, affect the story in, in, in any uh, significant manner. However, remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about the inspired word of God reporting on what is the single most important event in human history, if true. And I think that... Now, you hear this typical, I think he's kind of riffing on Bart Ehrman without going into the whole uh, one-liner, depends on what gospel you read. But he says, the gospels are just loaded with contradictions. And then he mentions something that's not a contradiction. And if you uh, watch the debate in its entirety, uh, McClatchy corrects him on this. Because, I mean, first of all, common sense, if there are uh, three women or more, there's at least one. And in fact, in, in talking about John's gospel where it's Mary, and then he doesn't read verse 2 uh, of that same chapter in John's gospel 20, uh, that, that we went to the tomb. And McClatchy points this out. And what's funny is, uh, unfortunately, Cosmic Skeptic tries to deny what he was trying to pull, which we'll see here later, and then try to say he was trying to make uh, some other points. But uh, no, he just kind of uh, botched this one. And he botched uh, the Lazarus story, as we'll see uh, later on as well. But um, if you have three women, you have uh, two. And you, if you have two, you have one. Um, and if you have, you know, one being the central focus, but yet in the same verse where one is being spotlighted, um, there's a reference to we. Uh, anyway, that's not really much of, a, uh, of an argument even though they're riddled with contradictions, that that's a throwaway line. Um, we acknowledge uh, there are differences in the Gospels. Various scholars have ways of harmonizing or uh, undesigned coincidences or uh, literary devices in the ancient world to resolve some of those. But uh, even he himself acknowledges that, yeah, I mean, it doesn't really uh, do too much. You're right, it doesn't. But this example you mentioned here... Um, doesn't do anything for your case to, to say, oh, they're just riddled with contradictions. Internal consistency is the very least we could expect from the sources which we're relying upon to provide us with evidence for that uh, occurrence. Uh, there are also uh, other instances Oops. that, 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 makes us, uh, that, that should make us skeptical that these are historical documents, such as the fact that Sorry. it's only in the book of Matthew that there is uh, uh, presented uh, the idea that there was a great earthquake and that angels moved the stone away from the tomb and allowed Jesus to rise from the dead. You would have thought that the other gospel, uh, other instances that, that, that makes us, uh, that, that should make us skeptical that these are historical documents, such as the fact that it's only in the book of Matthew that there is uh, uh, presented uh, the idea that there was a great earthquake and that angels moved the stone away from the tomb and allowed Jesus to rise from the dead. You would have thought that the other gospel uh, writers would have at least noticed that and if they did, probably would have included it in their narratives, but they... Why? 
uh, that's all I'm saying is why do they see this is uh, one of the problems that's that's typical that uh, if they were all identical, it's collusion. And if they're all different, it makes them unreliable. Uh, no, sometimes different things um, appeal to different audiences. Uh, one thing that we know is common among the Gospel of Matthew, as opposed to uh, Mark, per se, or Luke, is that these are written for different audiences. Um, Matthew is written primarily for a Jewish audience, and certain things might be more significant to Jewish audiences all throughout the Gospel, not just a mere earthquake or or, or something, but all of the, the 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 references to fulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament and so forth. Um, Mark's gospel's got a particularly Roman flair to it. It's brief, it's short, it's blunt. Jesus is going everywhere. It's this, it's that, and then he went, and then he went. It's fast moving, um, and it's straight to the point. Um, Luke is writing ancient historiography um, for his patron, and uh, it's it's less um, decorated or ornamented with. Uh, that much uh, things of, of Jewish interest. Uh, Theophilus was either a Jewish proselyte or he was a, a Gentile. Uh, John's gospel is an evangelistic track. Um, so these do- documents serve different purposes, and that's uh, what everyone understands, whether you find them reliable or believe their claims or not. So I'm not sure what he's on about saying, why did this gospel mention something when that gospel didn't mention it and so forth? Um, yeah, they were writing with different purposes. I don't, when I write, or when I'm sure when Cosmic Skeptic writes his papers at Oxford, he doesn't mention everything that he needs to mention in every paper that he writes in each of the papers. They even relate to similar topics because that's not related beyond the scope of what he is trying to do. We all know this as writers, so I, I'm not sure what he's on about. Some things just may be of more interest to certain audiences uh, than others. Didn't. Um, elsewhere in the Gospels, you've got uh, contradictions, not just uh, related to the, to the resurrection story. Uh, for instance, uh, the story of Lazarus, uh, Lazarus, who in the book of John is raised uh, to prove that Christ is, is, uh, is who he says he was. Um, and yet in the book of Luke, the same Lazarus, first is revealed to be, in fact, a fictional character because he appears first in a parable. Uh, And secondly, when uh, it is asked if Lazarus can be raised, Jesus says, no, he shouldn't be, um, because if they're not going to listen to Abraham and the prophets, then they're not going to be persuaded by that either. And that is just a blatant contradiction. So again, I stress these are small contradictions. He says that there's a blatant contradiction, but that's actually uh, not a blatant contradiction at all. Um, and he missed the point of the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Um, parables uh, make one or two points, um, and Lazarus, the name Lazarus was actually a common name. Um, most scholars agree, uh, common names. He says it's a contradiction because uh, Lazarus was not raised uh, when asked, but he was asked by the rich man, w- inquired of Abraham if Lazarus uh, would could be raised to go back uh, to warn the rich man's brothers. But the point of the parable is not that no one could be raised from the dead to prove anything. The point of the parable is, uh, if you read it, and if you take it as a parable, some people take it literally. I'm just, I, I think of it as a parable, but I know that some people think it was a, a true narrative story. Either way, the point of it, if you read it, is that, Abraham makes the point that you can't cross from one side of that chasm in Hades to the other. You can't go from one side to the other. Uh, that's the point, and that 
not that anyone can't be raised from the dead. So um, the point is not, well, we're not going to raise Lazarus to go warn anybody or as a, as a sign or anything. In John's gospel, Jesus raises his friend Lazarus um, in a demonstration of God's glory and power uh, in Christ. Um, but that's a different scenario than telling a parable. And later in the debate, in the Q&A, uh, McClatchy does a good job of uh, calling him out on this because there's no contradiction there because he acknowledges well it doesn't it doesn't have to be the same Lazarus it doesn't ha- it doesn't have to be it's still it's still uh, that, that that wasn't my point no that's exactly the point it's a blatant contradiction is what you just said and then you tried to back off and act like that's not what you were trying to say and it didn't really matter and so on and so forth so um, sorry cosmic skeptic not your finest moment there either in a opening statement filled with less than fine moments uh, sad to say. But it's interesting uh, to look at those stories and see that they're clearly making different uh, points of interest for the audiences of those Gospels. So uh, whether or not you believe Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, that has nothing to do with him telling the story using the name Lazarus the way that I use the name Jim Bob or Bubba, because I'm from Arkansas, um, to tell uh, stories to make uh, points. So that's what Jesus was doing in in these characters of the uh, rich man and Lazarus and Abraham and so forth in the parable in Luke. And then, of course, in the narrative where John tells the story uh, of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead, uh, which is not a parable or a story, um, but it's uh, something that happened in the narrative. So clearly this is not a contradiction at all, much less a blatant contradiction. But we'll continue. But the claim is so large that we should expect, at the very least, a historical accuracy. Another thing. Well, but if you don't have any contradictions, even though you say the riddle with them, every time you try to come up with one, you come up with none. Um, this is more of that uh, typical extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, uh, which is, of course, uh, meaningless, uh, aside from being just subjective extraordinary to who. Uh, if it's extraordinary to someone who is a presuppositionalist regarding metaphysical naturalism, then maybe you'll find that claim extraordinary, but that's uh, subjective. Uh, another thing is um, all claims require evidence, right? Uh Claims that seem out of the ordinary may require additional evidence, but uh, additional evidence is reasonable. There's no such category as extraordinary evidence, as if there's this turbocharged, super-duper evidence. That's not a thing. It's not a thing. And since it's not a thing, we shouldn't expect to find anything that's not a thing. So what we need is additional evidence, and I agree. So... Uh, that's why Christians continue to provide evidence on top of evidence on top of evidence, and atheists say, oh, well, I don't know, or it could have been this, or actually they don't even say it could have been this or it could have been that anymore, because every time they bring an alternative hypothesis to the resurrection, uh, they get obliterated, which is why they stopped doing it. But aside from that, it's just presuppositionalism as far as not just methodological naturalism, but metaphysical naturalism that would require you to think that that claim is so extraordinary that it requires uh, a non-thing in order to uh, validate it. So, but we don't, in the real world, um, we don't don't evaluate claims on non-things, we evaluate claims on evidence and certain claims do indeed require additional evidence but there's there's evidence there's not super duper turbocharged evidence it's not a thing so 
thing that should give us cause for concern with the Gospels and the Epistles, uh, but I'll start with the Gospels, is what appears to be instances of mythology. And one of the but again, as we discussed earlier, um, the Gospels are later, yes, that's true, uh, but the claims about the resurrection, um, not the accounts, the narratives of the story of what happened in history, but the claims of the resurrection long predate uh, the writings of the Gospels, um, which, of course, even Mark's Gospels, uh, like the First Corinthians or, or Romans, pretty long documents and require substantial resources to uh, put together a, a document like that. And then when you get into uh, Matthew and Luke territory, we're talking um, very large books, very long chapters, especially the first uh, few chapters of those Gospels. Uh, quite an ordeal and an undertaking, and to gather all the necessary information, there's no reason we shouldn't expect them to be later than uh, occasional documents like the Epistles, that are written to Christian communities where the claim has already been made, preached, and converts have have uh, believed and established themselves in these various communities that not only mention the resurrection but do all sorts of troubleshooting and everything else. Long predate the Gospels, uh, twenty to thirty years in some cases. So this is not really something that's unexpected. It's something that we would expect to find, especially in antiquity, where you can't just self-publish on Amazon. Hallmarks of mythology is what some people have called plagiarism uh, in quite a derogatory manner, but I don't think so. It's just it's the same as any myth um, travels throughout time. You see different. Now he's talking about myth and mythology. Uh, mythology um, mythology doesn't necessarily mean untrue, and so um, I think he confuses uh, mythology with the mythos. So mythos, to use a fictional example, unlike Christianity and the story of Jesus, uh, let's take Superman, who's modeled after Jesus in, in a lot of ways. Um, that's um, fiction imitating fact, uh, as far as I'm concerned. So, so, so the mythos of Superman is that he was born on Krypton. His parents sent him in a shuttle right before Krypton, uh, Krypton exploded. Um, Kryptonite uh, is his weakness. He was uh, raised in... Uh, Smallville, uh, Kansas, uh, by Jonathan and Martha Kent. Those are kind of, that's the mythos. Is it mythology? Yes. Is it true or false mythology? It's obviously fictional mythology, unlike, uh, the Bible. Uh, but you can use the word myth, mythology, or mythos that doesn't is, I have a, I have mythos, right? Um, the mythos about me was, um, or is that, um, uh, I lost 70 pounds. Uh, I have a alter ego called Pritchett Prime, uh, who says snarky comments alongside his, uh, lovely and affable co-host Braxton Hunter. Um, you know, there's, there's little things about me. Um, Braxton's the warm, friendly guy and I'm the cranky curmudgeon, uh, probably due to age. But, uh, you know, mythos, those are all actual things. So, there's no need to to try to use the word mythology as if you're trying to communicate something fake, uh, because mythology is not uh, that kind of uh, kind of a negative sense term. It is a neutral term, and it depends on the case. So if you're talking about the mythology of Pritchett Prime, or you're talking about the mythology of Jesus, or you're t talking about the mythology of fictional characters like Superman. Um, you're still, it's all mythology or mythos uh, involving a certain thing. So I like to use words uh, and try to uh, divest them of the 
additional baggage that he's trying to settle with the gospel. And then, of course, he is about to give uh, his example, which is uh, a train wreck as well. Incarnations. For instance, I'll take an example that was given by uh, Dr. Richard Carrier, who I know that... First sign uh, of a train wreck is um, quoting uh, Richard Carrier. Jonathan has debated on uh, my friend Justin Briley's show at least once. Um, he points out that in the book of Luke, there's a story of Cleopas, who travels from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and uh, upon that road, just, just after the, the body of, of Christ has disappeared, and when on that road, um, Christ appears and reveals the secrets of the kingdom, and Cleopas goes and tells everybody. Now, uh, conveniently, Cleopas means tell all or proclaim. Now, compare that to the earlier Roman story of Proculus traveling from Rome, uh, is traveling to uh, Rome, excuse me, after Romulus's body had vanished. Romulus appears to, Pro, uh, to Proculus and reveals the secrets of the empire, and Proculus then goes and proclaims that too. And of course, Proculus also means uh, proclaim. And, and the similarities between these stories are too many to be mere coincidence. They travel. It's, it kind of reminds me of the ship Titan that uh, was considered unsinkable, and yet it sank. And then some years later, um, there was this ship that was considered to be unsinkable called the Titanic, and it hit an iceberg and sank. And that's just, that, that, that's, um, certainly, uh, this story in history about the Titanic borrowed from a fictional story about the ship Titan. So we can't believe in the Titanic as an actual thing because the coincidences are just too many to not be, uh, depended upon. So anytime you read any article about the Titanic, obviously, um, that didn't happen. Uh, except that it did. So Parallelomania is kind of a dead end. Uh, uh, there are people on a boat, and this story uh, from the Greco-Roman uh, pagan mythology has people on a boat. So, man, clearly, if, if it's got a boat involved, it, it, well, they walk from a hill to a mountain. And in this story, they walk from a hill to a mountain and proclaim uh, some sort of news. Or if a plane hits the Empire State Building, obviously the story about a uh, plane hitting uh, the uh, Twin Towers can't be true because uh, we already had a true story of a plane hitting. I, I don't, th this kind of argumentation is a mess. So there's no, no sense in, in trying. Plus, there are several rules uh, involved. Uh, and, and McClatchy does a good job uh, of getting into this. There's several in, uh, rules involved when, when you're talking about uh, similarities and differences in ancient texts. Um, and one of those rules um, is is um, when you're when you're talking about literary dependence is lines of transmission. So uh, you know if unless you can establish those clear lines of transmission that uh, a bunch of Jews who just thought that pagan religion was the worst thing on the planet decided, yeah, let's let's borrow those ideas and let's become, uh, better world religion scholars than most contemporary modern day scholars if we were to believe all this parallelomania nonsense. Uh, no, it's just too far-fetched. So th this whole uh, line of reasoning is a train wreck. I'm uh, somewhat disappointed that Oxford here would, would take that track, uh, but it ultimately collapses into a big non sequitur. Just because something is similar to something else like we've seen with planes crashing uh, or we've seen with a fictional boat called the Titan and the actual boat called the Titanic, it doesn't mean anything. And, and plus, when you haven't uh, uh, given us clear lines of literary dependence and lines of transmission to how that story would have gotten into the Gospels uh, and why they would have made those uh, claims and, and where they got it from, uh, these Galileans running around uh, reading all sorts of 
pagan literature. Um, uh, Paul maybe, but uh, Peter, no. Uh, and of course, Paul was a later convert. Uh, Peter reading that stuff? I don't think so. Uh, James, brother of Jesus, Jude, um, son of these Texans becoming uh, world-renowned pagan religion scholars and borrowing all this doesn't seem likely at all. Well, on a, on a road that is precisely 14 miles long, they're both traveling from a mountain to a valley and so on and so on. It's very clear that the story is borrowed. Now, very clear that the Titanic is a fictional story because it's based on another fictional story about the Titanic. Very, very clear. No, it's actually not clear at all. Um, sorry, man. Uh, we expected more Oxford. Try harder. Does this mean that there's no historical accuracy in the Gospels? Of course not. What it means is that the Gospels are riddled with myth, and it's not an easy task to discern what is history and what is not. And if the only evidence that we really have for a bodily resurrection comes from within these texts, then we should be incredibly skeptical uh, before we try to accept it. Now, again, consider the level of the claim here. Once again, this is like the fifth time he said it. If we're talking about the most important central figure in human history, rising from the dead. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, if you uh, stump on a self-defeating, worthless worldview of uh, metaphysical, and I don't know that he does, but he's just, uh, but if he's so uh, to the claim of a resurrection, which I don't even know why, uh, personally, why, um, that would be in a, that objectionable claim, even from a purely physical, because we're talking about something that happened to a physical body. So obviously, whatever wonder-working power that God worked in raising Jesus from the dead, it involved the manipulation of physical objects. So I, you know, I, I don't get the the the. But okay. Uh Allow me to elucidate with an example. If I were to claim to you that Alfred Hitchcock had risen from the dead, what would it take to convince you? If you saw a similar presentation with the same kinds of historical facts that have just been presented and the same kind of appeals to scripture, but the claim was instead of Jesus rising from the dead, Alfred Hitchcock, would any of you be convinced? Well, it depends, because there are no scriptures about uh, Alfred Hitchcock, right? Alfred Hitchcock didn't view himself as God's special eschatological agent to Hollywood to make a film uh, that will uh, be more than just watching North by Northwest on TBS at 10.30 at night if you can find it. Um, no, these are just swapping out Jesus for Hitchcock is not uh, a a valid w way of arguing because you're saying, what would it take to believe? Well, it depends on the circumstances, but you picked a guy that was a filmmaker, a quite a good filmmaker at that, and uh, played uh, with gusto by Anthony Hopkins uh, depicting Alfred Hitchcock, um, in case you haven't seen that film. Uh, but we're not talking, uh, you can't just, okay, pick, that, that's like trying to say, okay, what would it take for you to be convinced that Jim Bob, he says, okay, but let's assume that they have scriptures. Let's assume that we have the same evidence. Well, if it's the exact same, then I would be an apologist for Hitchcock instead of Jesus, uh, if Jesus, if Hitchcock also claimed to be the special eschatological agent. But if you're not doing a one-to-one -one correspondence with all the same evidence, then this is a meaningless uh, hypothetical question. I certainly wouldn't be. Now, imagine I say that uh, I have a set of texts that are not internally coherent. They're not confirmed by any other historical data and elsewhere within these... Uh, within the I don't know why he keeps these not confirmed by... Uh, the New Testament documents are over and over and over again uh, confirmed in uh, their reliability. They're confirmed in their... Uh, the historicity. I don't know why he keeps with these throwaway lines. Um, do better.
these uh, sources. There's myth and allegory, and we can't really tell uh, which is which. And uh, actually, um, you can tell uh, which is which. Even Christians recognize that certain uh, portions of Scripture are allegorical. In fact, in one of Paul's epistles, he specifically says, I'm using a story from the Old Testament about Sarah and Hagar as an allegory. Right. So, I mean, there, there are, there are ways to tell in scripture if you're looking at allegory. Now, I know that he's referring to the gospels, which most evidentialist apologists, when they make a case for a resurrection, don't even use the gospels because you can make the case for the resurrection without it. But even if you do use the gospels, which I think you should, because uh, they tell the fuller story, uh, especially considering your need, uh, to repent and believe so that you, um, can have eternal life with Jesus as opposed to facing the consequences of eternal judgment and, uh, Hell. So, um, that's a good idea to read the Gospels, uh, and to believe their message and all that. But, uh, yeah, you don't need the Gospels to make a case for the resurrection, but they are nice to have. But just saying, oh, they're just riddled with problems. Well, okay, but you've already said that even if they are, and by the way, not every resurrection affirming Christian affirms the inerrancy, and some, some Christians can say, yeah, there are some problems, probably less than this idea of riddled with allegory and, and, and contradiction. But uh, even even if they did, it doesn't follow from that that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So you're spending a lot of time trying to be somewhere between Bart Ehrman and uh, Richard Carrier, uh, Cosmic Skeptic here, is doing that, and it's ending up worse than both. It's these texts that have given me the evidence that Alfred, Hitch, uh, that Alfred Hitchcock rose from the dead. This certainly would not be enough for any intelligent person. Uh, it, well, depends on what they're talking about, right? See, you can't just, unless you're saying that Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock is Jesus and it's the exact same texts, because just saying they're similar, making similar claims, you have to understand that the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ, uh, part of what's... Um, goes into uh, the case for the resurrection is the background information about Jesus, his self-understanding, his mission, you know, the religious um, milieu of first century Israel. All of that stuff has to be in factor. So you can't just toss out, well, what if there are texts and then you have Hitchcock and a claim that he rose from the dead? No, build me a better hypothetical than this pedestrian one. Because you have to look at each case uh individually and if you're just substituting uh Hitchcock for Jesus and everything else be identical then yeah I would have to believe in Hitchcock but that I don't think that you're doing that but you're not really doing anything you're just saying well what if we had this and what if we had that um it depends we'd have to look at it and so let the uh Hitchcock apologists make their case based on the text that if they're not scripture um whatever text they are uh and then we can evaluate those claims right um I'll entertain it, but you're not going to step up and make that claim, just like Matt Dillahunty won't defend um, the um, Super Pixie or whatever it is that he uh, was talking about. To accept, even just if the claim was not as extraordinary as a, somebody raising from the dead, but with the level of the claim, I think we should require a, a whole lot more, uh, a whole lot more than this. Um, imagine you found a book on nutrition 
uh, and uh, it contained a similar level of, of inaccuracy. But notice he's talking about the Gospels, and uh, we do have a whole lot more than just the Gospels. And in fact, the Gospels aren't the earliest evidence, uh, or uh, the earliest documents from antiquity that report about the resurrection of Jesus. And most people make the case of the resurrection uh, of Jesus without the Gospels at all. The chapters contradict each other, and uh, you, you become convinced that somehow the recipes may be allegorical in some areas and, and, and not in others. And then the book makes uh, an outrageous claim, like, like that you should cut fiber from your diet entirely. Would you trust that claim? Of course you wouldn't. And that's not just because the claim is so ridiculous. This it's is what they need to teach at Oxford, that preachers um, uh, they who go to seminaries get the benefit of um, illustrations. Um, you're talking about a nutritious book and then a claim. Uh, these are different kinds of claims anyway. Um, there could be actual reasons why you would want to at least minimize fi fiber in your diet. I don't know. Uh, I'm not a nutritionist, but um, I like to eat apples. So uh, I like to eat bran. Go figure. But I'm just saying um, you need better illustrations because these illustrations are like a bad preacher illustrations that are just kind of you know, just don't really relate to them. Um, anyway, that's, that's the benefit of seminary is that, that speakers get uh, trained in how to use effective illustrations. Do you have evidence that the book is not... I'm sorry, that was just nitpicky though. But, uh, but I like good oratory. You know, I like good presentations and I like effective illustrations. And when you're talking about uh, fiber... Not trustworthy. Now, again, we're limited in time, and there's more to be discussed here in terms of the evidence that's been provided, but one thing I want to point out is that this is something of an irrelevancy, because there's still a whole lot more that needs to be done. The resurrection does not automatically prove divinity. This is not a point that I think is pressed enough. Uh, I would agree with that claim that resurrection is... A, so if Jim Bob, uh, to, because we're like cosmic skeptics, I like to use hypotheticals. Um, so let's say the claim was that, you know, Jim Bob rose from the, does it prove that Jim Bob was the divine incarnate son of God, of, of Yahweh at all? No, I agree. Um, that's, that's perfectly fine. Uh, but we'd have to examine the, uh, surrounding, uh, context of why Jim Bob was raised from the dead, you know, uh, unless Jesus raised him from the dead, that's perfect. Or, or through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, there was a resurrection. Um, there are those claims. Craig Keener documents them in Miracles, uh, his big book on on those sorts of claims. Um, so, you know, and of course there's resuscitations and everything else. So um, there could be all kinds of things, right? Uh, so, yeah, it doesn't necessarily prove divinity than when somebody was technically or medically speaking, brain dead or dead, uh, and then they were resuscitated doesn't prove the divinity of either the doctor or uh, of the patient that was uh, resuscitated. So, yeah, I agree that that in and of itself doesn't prove divinity. Um, but the context in which someone was raised. Now, if someone was raised from the dead in the name of Jesus, Right, that might confirm Jesus's uh, divinity as the conduit and broker of power through whom one is able to, to perform such miracles. Because um, the disciples, uh, there was resurrection in Acts. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it just depends on the context, uh, and it seems like the context of Jesus's resurrection points to uh, divinity, which is why Paul, long before John's Gospel was written, claimed that Jesus was God uh, in a couple of epistles. For instance, let me give you an example. 
Imagine I were to say to you uh, that um, rape is sometimes permissible if the victim is attractive enough. Would you think of me if I said such an awful thing? You'd think I was some kind of moral monster. But then I say, oh, no, sorry, I forgot to mention, I, I rose from the dead the other day. Are you going to be any more convinced by my moral claim? Yeah, and Jesus never made that moral claim, so it's not really a problem for us. But this is, uh, once again, uh, an illustration uh, that's not working for you. I don't think so. Uh, and this is even if I were to prove that I'd risen from the dead. If I say, yeah, you should, you should trust my moral claims, and you should trust my extraordinary historical claims and truth claims, if I claim that the earth is flat or whatever it may be, simply on the basis of the fact that I rose from the dead, I don't think you'd be all too convinced. And that's even if I was able to prove to you that I had risen from the dead. Wrong. You could actually prove that, if you could prove to me that you rose from the dead um, and demonstrate your, that you are deity, then it doesn't matter that I don't like your moral claims. If, if you proved that you rose from the dead and claimed to be God, uh, but yeah, like you're saying, it doesn't prove divinity, but if you could prove your resurrection and could prove that you were divine, because like in Jesus and all, um, uh, all things consist, right? So Jesus, the, the person, second person of the Trinity, co-creator of everything. If you're, if that's you, uh, it doesn't matter that I don't like your moral code. So your claim that um, it doesn't give us divinity because we don't like your morals, that's just a non sequitur. It doesn't follow that you're not divine because we don't like your moral system. Uh, it just could mean that uh, Cthulhu is uh, real and exists, and Cthulhu is God, or, or evil cosmic skeptic who, you know, champions rape, um, for example, for his example. That was his example, not mine. Um, yeah, um, just because I don't like your moral system doesn't mean that you're not divine if you are divine in, in fact divine so your example is not only a bad one but it's just a non sequitur and we can flippantly dismiss it what we're dealing with is not just uh, a, a case where we know someone's risen from the dead but where we have maybe some good reason maybe not to believe that he might have risen from the dead uh, and, and all that we have to, to support that is something along the lines of well the disciples seemed to think so uh, according to whom well of course according to uh, the gospel. That's a question I'd also like to ask um, Jonathan, is if you have any extra-biblical evidence, and by extra, I don't mean extra-biblical, please, I mean extra-biblical evidence um, that the disciples uh, that the disciples were put to death. Uh, uh, yes, in fact, if you watch the Q&A, he mentions uh, some of those for um, Oxford trained theologian cosmic skeptic who should have been better prepared and if you're interested in more on that topic i want to highly uh commend and recommend uh, sean mcdowell's book on uh the fate of the apostles if you want to know more information about what happened uh to the apostles uh that's from extra biblical um sources you should check that out uh and check out some of his presentations on the subject fascinating subject uh yes there is um, unfortunately, Oxford here uh, failed to do his homework, and in, in, in the Q and A once again is uh, tagged for it. So, um, again, not your finest moment, because uh, now you don't have to believe those claims, uh, right? But is there uh, data uh, outside of the Bible about that? Yeah, and then of course he's going to go on talking about this and forget to mention Stephen. For their beliefs, um, there are there are two recorded instances of disciples' uh, deaths or of the apostles' deaths in uh, the the Gospels. The first is James, brother of John, who was put to death by Herod with a sword. Um, and I'd ask, 
if there is any, not even just extra biblical evidence, but even biblical evidence, that that could have somehow been um, avoided had uh, had James recanted, had he... Wouldn't possibly matter one way or the other as to whether Jesus rose from the dead, so who cares? Uh, said that actually, no, I deny Christ. Would that have saved him? There's no evidence to suggest that's the case. The only other death uh, recorded is the suicide of Judas. So there's no evidence outside of the Bible that the disciples actually... Well, if you're talking about the... Are we talking about the Gospels or are we talking about the Bible? Because again, Stephen was martyred uh, in the book of Acts, written by one of the Gospel authors as the sequel to his work of historiography called the Gospel of Luke. But, you know, I'm... Uh, all this, fo uh, uh, he said the Bible, but then he said, uh, you, you know, um, I, w I don't know if he was actually uh, just talking about evidence outside of the Gospels, but if he said Bible, uh, there's more uh, martyrs uh, in the Bible, like Stephen in the book of Acts, for example. So, not real clear, but okay. Uh, anyway were martyred in this way, and if that was one of the most important parts of the opening speech that we just heard, which I think it probably was, um, again, we're going to need more than that. Um, now, again, more than what? Um, we have, the fact that we have four Gospels and the fact that we have the New Testament is quite remarkable of how much documents from antiquity about a particular person and a particular group of people that's impressive compared to the sources we have for plenty of other folks so i don't i but let's say we had twice as many we would still hear the throwaway line oh we need more than that no uh we've got enough uh in fact we've got more than most uh things that you believe from history yourself so uh, let's stop complaining about the abundance of evidence that we have, or at least the abundance of documents that we have. Uh, so, I can also refer to uh, C.S. Lewis, which I'll do. C.S. Lewis made a famous observation, it's known as, as, as like his trilemma, if you will, uh, that, that Jesus Christ, if he were not truly the Son of God, were a madman. And Lewis concludes that because he doesn't think he's a madman, he must be the Son of God. Now. If you are a past or present member of the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society, I'm sure that your your countenance has fallen when you heard that. Okay, it's um, trilemma means three. Um, it's Lord, liar, or lunatic. Right? He's either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord, and he can. But he did not leave us the option of just some moral teachers, so don't pontificate about that. Um, so if you're going to quote C.S. Lewis, bring C.S. Lewis uh, at Oxford, no less. I love you, man, but come on. Liar, lunatic lord, everyone knows that. You're at Oxford for crying out loud. You should get C.S. Lewis right. I think this is the wrong way around. So this would be, uh, this would be like, uh, if, if you take the example that I just gave you of me coming up with some uh, incredible moral claim, this would be like uh, somebody saying that unless Alex really did rise from the dead and is therefore really the son of God, then his moral claims about rape would be absolutely absurd. No, it's because the claims are absurd that we should be skeptical of the source from which. No, that doesn't, that's, again, that's a non sequitur. You should be skeptical of the claim for any number of reasons, but 
It doesn't follow, which is what your case was earlier. Now, being skeptical, yeah, fine. Be skeptical all you like. But you were saying divinity doesn't follow from morality was what you were referring to earlier in your thing. And again, that's just a non sequitur. Um, we may not like your morality, but that doesn't mean that... Because, see, God exists. and Come on. I mean, God exists. <coughs> Christianity is true, by the way. Um, but just because you don't like that, the morality doesn't mean... Uh, uh, Christian morality doesn't mean that <clears throat> it's false, and nor does it mean that you can just bury your head in skepticism if the evidence is uh, as compelling as uh, many of us happen to think it is. Um, it's not like anything follows from that morality is bad, therefore. But yeah, you can be skeptical. Um, be skeptical all you like. Some people have vested interests in being skeptical of Christianity, and I understand that. Some people don't. Um, and I'm not a mind reader. I don't know uh, about this particular gentleman, but I'm just saying that it doesn't mean anything. You can be skeptical of a lot of things. That's fine. Uh, but divinity saying, I don't like his morality or her morality. Therefore, there's no divinity involved. That's uh, non sequitur. So just want to reinforce that since he brought up his earlier point, though, he's making a slightly different one saying we should be skeptical. Fine, we should be skeptical of all kinds of things. I'm skeptical of all kinds of things. It's no big deal, but I mean, there's a reasonable level of uh, skepticism, and then there's an unreasonable level of skepticism. Uh, my co-host Braxton Hunter has done numerous episodes on that, and so I want to refer you to those. Uh, they come. So I think we need to work at it in, in the other way around, and I don't have much time left. I'm hoping to get some kind of warning. I have I, I no idea where I'm at. 30 seconds. Okay, well, that's not quite enough time to go over all the immoralities that I found in the Bible, um, but we'll discuss those in the rebuttal period, I'm sure, which is, uh, for instance, the advocacies for slavery, the condemnation historically and in the modern day of homosexuality and the disparagement of women, I think. Okay, so um, this kind of uh, point doesn't really land, and I'm going to tell you why in a moment, but he brings up issues of slavery it says the objections to homosexuality, and then he talks about the disparagement of women. Uh, by the way, um, in the ancient world, um, women were treated better in the Bible than in any in ancient Israel and in the New Testament, especially in the New Testament, but even in Israel, far and away better than any of their contemporaries uh, in the ancient world. That these things should suggest to us that if we find them morally uh, in, indefensible, then we should find indefensible the doctrine from which they spring, because of course part of Christianity is an objective moral framework, and so if the moral claims are false, then so must be the doctrine uh, that they come from. So if you disagree with these moral claims, then you have two options. It's either to find some, uh, some, find some way to make them moral, reinterpret the Gospel or the Bible or, or elsewhere in the Bible to make them moral, or accept uh, that the faith from which they spring is flawed. And well, let's say that the Braxton Hunter and I have done numerous episodes, and I don't even know why this is still a thing, except to uh, appeals to emotion. Uh, clearly, a difference in in slavery uh, in the ancient uh, Israelite community as opposed to all of their contemporary neighbors. And of course, clearly in the New Testament, the ethics toward from you know that the trajectory was uh, complete and total abolition because you, once um, uh, Philemon was told to treat Onesimus. Anesimus, like a brother, you know that slavery was doomed uh, to end in the Christian communities, uh, which it did, and Christians have since been abolitionists. So um, despite the differences in, in the slavery in ancient Israel um, and everywhere else, um, if you compare it to its own uh, neighbors, 
uh, yeah, it, and you can check out our videos on that um, that Braxton Hunter and I have done in the past. Now, of course, but there was a problem here because he says if you find the objections to homosexuality, um, you know, if you find that an affront to your uh, to your moral sensibilities, then you should you should reject Christianity or or seriously. Um, be skeptical of it or whatever. Now, notice only in the last 50 years or so has homosexual behavior actually been considered moral uh, or increasingly moral, and, uh, more so even in the last 20 years than in the last 50. Uh, but for a lot of human history and a lot of places in human history, uh, it was considered um, immoral. So you can't judge the morality of something by your current moral mood. So, by that standard, everyone thought that slavery was moral and that abolitionism was immoral. And people have argued that way. And by your reasoning, if you would ask that same question, or if you think that this abolition of slave stuff is just, is just, that's immoral, we can't accept that kind of stuff, then, then, then all of the beliefs of these abolitionists, you should reject all of those beliefs as well. Uh, their beliefs in Christianity or their beliefs in secular humanism, you should just be very skeptical because we know that abolitionism is immoral because we know that slavery is moral, right? So basing it on contemporary whims can go both ways, and it doesn't work because if you were standing up there at Oxford saying abolitionism is immoral, so we shouldn't listen to X, Y, and Z because we know that slavery is immoral, is moral, right? Anyone can make these kind of claims right so that's that ultimately doesn't work uh because i would i would not want somebody up there telling me that slavery is moral that abolitionism is immoral and so we should ignore uh whatever belief systems of those abolitionists because we know that they're immoral so just because you from your contemporary current moral mood uh with a little bit of twins of chronological snobbery say well uh, the Bible, ancient and modern, uh, and Christianity, ancient and modern, they, they, they don't, uh, uh, sit lightly to homosexual lifestyles. And so we should, we should find that morally offensive because they think that homosexuality is, that doesn't work. Okay. Uh, that's not a good argument. Now, I understand that that's a sensitive issue. And of course, uh, calling homosexuality a sin, uh, is just a religious belief, uh, it has nothing to do with the treatment of homosexuals by Christians, which, um, you know, they get wrongly tagged with all sorts of, oh, they're horrible people because of X and how they handle the homosexuals. No. In fact, Christians, I think, uh, are falling all over themselves to be overly congenial to a community that is outright hostile to them uh, in a lot of significant ways. So, but the whole idea of, well, we find certain things morally offensive from our contemporary moral mood, therefore X, that doesn't follow because you can go back to any time period where you would say, where the contemporary society of times past would say that something like abolitionism is immoral. And you would not, you would, you would be the same guy advocating that, um, we should keep slavery, slavery. We all know it's moral. These abolitionists are immoral, right? So just swap homosexuality out for anything else and your argument doesn't work here. That's not a reason to reject certain claims of the belief systems because moral moods, uh, especially those who have a subjective moral basis or 
cannot come up with a, a reasonable, objective moral basis. These kind of claims are like uh, shooting in the... Uh, shooting in the dark because you they don't make any sense and nothing follows from them more to discuss but i think because i'm out of time we should save that for the next period thank you for listening now uh in conclusion none of his argumentation was really all that compelling uh and in the um q a to follow i think mclatchy really does pick him apart pretty well um and exposes uh some but not all of the blunders that that i have highlighted here today um but again i do want to say that i appreciate cosmic skeptic in, in, in many ways this simply was not his uh finest hour uh or finest 10 minute opening statement and probably wasn't a good debate for him anyway but um nothing personal but it, you just got to do better especially you know don't mangle c.s lewis uh being an Oxford gent, please. Um, but that's, that wasn't the worst of it. So a lot of his arguments uh, in his opening statement just fall flat um, because it just a lot of things are just non sequiturs they don't follow, or a lot of uh, inaccuracies uh, regarding uh, what the current consensus of scholarship is, a lot of inaccuracies and misstatements about just riddled and riddled and riddled with contradictions, just throwaway lines like that. Um, well, you didn't demonstrate any of those none of your examples worked for you to, to do that so this was just kind of a um half-baked opening statement probably not his best but anyway there you go um i hope you enjoyed this uh review and critique of cosmic skeptics opening statement from his debate with mclatchy who subsequently went on to beat cosmic skeptic in this debate i think um and i thank you for watching so uh, if you want to view some of the other videos, hopefully they'll be linked in the description, uh, the ones that I referred to earlier on other subjects that he had mentioned. Uh, if you are interested in learning formally, go to www.trinitysim.edu and you can start your theological education today. And be sure to also check out our sister podcast, uh, Soteriology 101 with Leighton Flowers, The Bible Down with Matt Chisholm and Billy Winlin, and The Narrow Path with Steve Gregg. And if you would like to continue to support uh, Trinity Radio, become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash trinityradio and sign up and you get all, all kinds of goodies for your monthly contribution. So thank you very much, and y'all have a good one.